This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. A quick reminder before we go to this week's episode that Intelligence Squared is back for in-person events from October 2021. To book your tickets for the first debate, Yanis Varoufakis versus Gillian Tett on whether we can fix capitalism, go to intelligencesquared.com and get your tickets today. But now on to this week's episode, we're joined by Kai-Fu Lee, one of the world's leading experts on artificial intelligence, who speaks to Kamal Ahmed about how the next 20 years are set for massive developments and changes as artificial intelligence accelerates in growth. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link with the Intelligence Square discount on Kai-Fu's new book in the episode description. But now, let's go to the podcast. Thanks so much, Connor, and uh, welcome to everyone. I'm speaking to you at lunchtime in London, but people are joining us from around the world. And Kai-Fu Lee, thank you so much for joining us from Beijing. So an evening hello to you, Kai-Fu. A little introduction for our our guest. Probably doesn't need that much, but he is one of the world's leading AI experts. He founded Microsoft Asia's Research Lab, and he's trained chief technology officers and AI heads at Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba, and Huawei. Uh, he was president of Google China, where he helped to establish the company in the Chinese market. Now... He's CEO of Sinovation Ventures. He's invested in China's high-tech sector, which gives Kaifu Yu a unique perspective on how AI is going to develop in all the different geographies around the world. It must be one of the most important subjects of the 21st century is how the interface between artificial intelligence and us, mere human beings, actually works. Your book, it was exciting, it was thrilling. And I want to ask you about the trick initially as your first question that you pulled with this book is that you have written it with a famous fiction, science fiction writer, Chen Chufan. And I just wondered, Kaifu, could you kick us off first with your idea with the book? There have been a lot of books about AI but this is very different. Why approach it with a fiction writer? Because I've uh, met so many people who tell me they're intimidated by the uh, complex rocket science math behind AI. They don't get it. So they don't bother to understand it. And therefore, they are sometimes misled by statements that, or comments they, they hear from other people on uh, social media, etc. And yet I think AI is such an important technology that everybody should understand. And the gap between AI 
and their understanding is just someone who can uh, tell it in an interesting, engaging, and maybe even entertaining way. And I know I can't do that, so I reached out to my friend uh, Chu Fan, and uh, we actually both used to work at Google. Uh, and said, "Hey, you've now become a science fiction writer. You're the president of the Chinese Science Fiction Association. You've written best-selling、uh, science fiction books. How about if we work together?" And and here's what I would like to see if you're willing to do: constrain your imagination and don't put anything in the stories that I don't think is feasible to develop in 20 years. And actually, to my surprise, he quickly agreed. And then we moved on to、uh, to write the book. You quote at the first、um, in the preface to the book, Amara's Law. We tend to overestimate the effect of a te- technology in the short run, and underestimate the effects in the long run. Give us a big overview of your sense of where AI is taking us. Are you net positive or net negative when you look to the future? Uh, I do think it's so true that we overestimate the short term. I would say three to five years, and underestimate for the long term.、Uh, a case in point is when I worked on speech recognition in the eighties、uh, and nineties. And whenever I worked at Apple, Microsoft, and you know our CEO would ask, "Hey, when will this really work?" And I would say, "Definitely in five years." <laughs> and I was always wrong until. The last maybe ten years or so, but had I answered twenty years, I would have been right all the time. So、uh, we we technologists sometimes just think, hey, it's demonstrated, it seems to work, but we haven't figured out that you require so much more computing and figuring out the user interface and getting market acceptance and potentially legal issues, etc., before it gets accepted. So twenty years is really a long time. A lot of things that. Uh, seems maybe a little bit like science fiction can really work, and we can extrapolate it based on various types of trends, like what percentages are、uh, speech recognition, machine translation, image recognition improving? How fast are autonomous vehicles improving? One can really make a trajectory for these. And as far as the net positive or not question you asked,、uh, I believe that history has shown us that. Big technology platforms like electricity, internet, computers、uh, have definitely proven themselves to be by far more positive than negative for humanity.、Uh, yet, at the time that they were introduced, there were periods when people、uh, may have been disillusioned, or felt it was hype, or felt it's too difficult to build or overcome. But eventually, if the technology is truly magical and useful enough. It does prove itself in the long term, so I'm going to use that as my basis uh, to to um, as a foundation why I feel positively over time.、Uh, I also realize that today, when you look at AI, there are many、uh, issues that could be very troubling,、uh, that could be very challenging, and some could actually become existential problems. But but electricity, internet had those challenges also. So I want to remain optimistic, and I think、um, history is、um, uh, I think is providing evidence、uh, that we can be optimistic. Kaifu, lots of people have described the impact that AI may have in in various terms, comparing it with the internet, electricity. Sundar Pichai,、um, chief executive of Alphabet, said that. AI was as significant as the invention of fire. 
or the discovery of fire, sorry, and how to um, actually manipulate fire and be able to control it in some way. I mean, is that the significance that really the public need to understand about how AI can affect almost every process? Yes, I think fire would be a suitable uh, comparison. Uh, I like electricity and、um, internet better because they were actually invented through critical thinking and scientific process,、uh, as opposed to fire, which was presumably discovered、um, as an accident.、Uh, but I think the impacts are similar. That these are platforms; they're not one invention that solves one problem. It's not like the elevator or uh, you know, um, the switchboard. Those are、uh, or the typewriter. These were good inventions, but they basically solved one problem. But electricity, internet,、uh, AI, and I think fire were became a platform that enabled many, many things and many other inventions to be built on top of that. So I, I think those are probably four of the a handful of key breakthroughs that、uh, changed the future for for the human race. Let's go through some of the key concepts. Uh, that surround AI, and as you say, I think can make it feel intimidating for people trying to speak about its relevance to them and how things might develop. Let's kick off with deep learning,、uh, and you do a lot of work on deep learning and how vision object recognition for、um, computers has been hugely helped by deep learning processes. Talk us through. Deep learning as a as a subset of the AI world, because people can confuse terms and not quite know which part of AI they're trying to talk about. And given your point about it's actually a platform for many different applications, where does deep learning sit in that group? Okay,、uh, the proper definition of AI is study of all technologies and things、uh, that resemble intelligence, human or superhuman. And and underneath that study, machine learning is a particular way for algorithms to to learn to become intelligent, and uh, uh, usually using mathematical,、uh, mathematically sound algorithms to do that from data. And deep learning is a particular branch of machine learning that uses、uh, deep neural networks, and you expose a lot of data to it. You don't actually program it to do things. You tell it the goal you want to accomplish, show it a lot of data, and then it learns from the data,、uh, the structure of the data in a way that is suitable for the computational model. That structure、uh, almost definitely does not match the human structure, because humans are good at some things like、uh, analysis and uh, uh, inferencing and.、Uh, uh, Uh, creativity and and rules and、um, a context and things like that, but、uh, machines just look at huge amount of data in a complex deep network and trains a mathematical model that optimizes a certain decision making process. So、uh, that is the process that's being used,、uh, whether it's in speech recognition, machine translation, a、uh, bank trying to decide. Whether to give someone a loan、uh, would actually collect data from lots of people, all the all the features they can imagine, the salary, the address, the zip code, and also、um, previous purchases and whatever data we can get their hands on, and 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 all the and then labeled with whether that person when borrowed so much money whether they defaulted or returned it, 
and then it learns to make a very complex function that separates the, re- the people who returned it from the people who defaulted. And that decision surface in a thousand-dimensional space potentially is able to look at any new person who contributes these answers to the questions and, and gets mapped to the space. So that's why uh, deep learning is able to uh, work so effectively uh, by looking at huge amounts of data. And, it, and, what, and the, the key property, several key properties it possesses, uh, one is that it gets better with more data. Uh, evidence seems to show that uh, the performance of a system continues to improve if you throw uh, more data at it with, along with more processing and maybe some tweaks to the model. So that's something that's really amazing because uh, your Excel and your Photoshop does not automatically improve just with a faster uh, uh, processor or more pictures. But this algorithm actually does. So that's pretty amazing. The other thing is that it uh, can be targeted personally. So the fact that TikTok shows me a bunch of videos I can't help but looking at, uh, the same videos probably won't work on my daughter or on my wife or on my friend. It's basically learning each person and showing that person videos. Uh, If you don't use TikTok, YouTube does the same thing. Uh, Showing you videos that you can't help but watch. And, and that ability to customize for each person is something static web pages or humans cannot do. Uh, there are other f- capabilities, but these capabilities really set it apart. Growth capabilities as more data is presented and ability to personally target each individual with a, something perfect for that person. Neural networks, Kaifu, such an important part of how the AI approach uh, will develop. Can you take us through in, in layperson's terms neural networks? Because sometimes I find talking to people about it, and as I say, I've covered this subject for a while, they then think that is actually sort of mimicking the way the brain thinks. What do neural networks actually mean? And then I think we'll get on to some of those issues around the personal targeting. Okay, so a deep neural network would be like thousands of layers, and the layers are uh, connections and nodes. So uh, connections have weights. So uh, the way you train a neural network through deep learning is to show it lots and lots of pictures. So let's say you want to separate pictures of dogs from cats. So you feed it a photograph of a dog and then um, into the network. And then the layers are, are numbers that keep multiplying. Uh, to, so so the, the, the connections going to a node are, are, are multiplied by the weights and added together. So think of it as just flowing forward uh, internally structures that um, propagate these weights from the photo of the dog or cat itself. Then it flows all the way to the end, and the last node either says dog or cat. And, and if there's a picture of a dog and it says a dog, then you want to go back and tell the network uh, you're, you basically gave the right answer. Uh, if, it, if you gave the wrong answer, then it would ask the network, how would you want to readjust your weights in a way that the next time you might get the right answer? So it's like you know teaching a child, saying this is a dog, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a cat, what's this? And if they got it wrong, then that, uh, that one, whether it's right or wrong, becomes reinforced um, by, by learning by saying, okay, you figure out whatever it is that makes this picture a dog, uh, yet you thought it's a cat. Whatever made you think it's a cat, it's a little bit wrong. Whatever makes you think it's not a dog, it's a little bit wrong. Tweak your, tweak your weights. 
And then this weight tweaking is the mathematical um, magic called backpropagation uh, or gradient descent that, uh, that solves the problem. Of course, it actually has to go through these um, um, potentially millions of iterations for the gradient descent to adjust the weights so that when I presented, let's say, a million picture of dogs and cats, uh, after many, many iterations, maybe it'll categorize 99.9% accurately. And it can't, just can't, whatever it does, it can't tweak the weights anymore to get it more accurate than we feel that is converged. And then we take this network and show it more pictures of cats and dogs, and hopefully it'll perform close to 99.9%. That's a super helpful way of walking us through the neural network uh, system. Just on that personalization issue you raised um, around TikTok, YouTube, of course, there's that kind of slight klaxon moment then for some members, you know, some people. That's the problem with TikTok and with YouTube. It serves me certain things in certain ways to, to trap me, some critics say, on the site for commercial reasons. Is AI simply a super booster way of very big companies making even more uh, money out of their ability to keep us trapped in their ecosystems? Uh, it is. I wouldn't say the internet companies are evil in the way that you may imply. Uh, they're just, they just want to make money. And I don't think they want to um, cause any of us any harm. But um, the, they're the basically first set of companies that started using AI because they're the first ones who have so much data. And then they're the first ones who realize uh, AI applied to large amounts of data, can maxim- you can maximize whatever you want. Think about it. If you're a CEO of Amazon, Google, or Facebook, all of a sudden you have a tool at your disposal. You can uh, basically turn the knob and say, I want some more uh, revenue. I want some more usage. I want some more profit. And whatever it is you want, it will show people uh, whatever it is that will get you the most of whatever it is you want. So a company in the growth stage might want more users, then more revenue, then more profits. And if your quarter is challenging, you tweak for a little more profit. Um, and if, you're, if you want to go for more growth, you tweak for vo- revenue. It's almost like a, a magical uh, thousands of employees who will obey your exact direction. So this comes as a huge gift and the result of which is first, these internet companies made a lot of money. Uh, at least half of their market cap is based on the power of these technologies combined with data. Secondly, it uh, reinforced their market leadership, or you want to call it monopoly, you can. Uh, but um, uh, because previously, uh, powerful market positions were created by brand, good products, and the users and loyalty, and maybe your data stuck with it or something like that. But now it adds on top of that the total vast amount of data it collects from all the people on which it can train to target any of the all of the people. And that power cannot be replicated by a competitor who has one-tenth the market uh, position. So it uh, will reinforce monopolies um, as well. So these are the two powerful things. Uh, and, and really, I think um, the big mismatch is that they didn't realize, hopefully they're beginning to realize, is that they are using these, this double-edged sword called AI optimization uh, maniacally to help them make more profit 
without realizing the externalities that it may have on the users. So the externalities were not intentionally created. Uh, uh, our addiction or our inclination to watch more violent or, or more extremist content, uh, they're, they're basically AI, uh, maybe one step at a time, <laughs> making us a little bit more extremist, a little more violent, or a little bit um, uh, interested in inappropriate content, uh, just because it gets more eyeballs and minutes for the website. So I think people now understand the danger. The question is, how do the internet companies find a way to build and rebuild and fix their AI so that they're really more in alignment with our, the user's interests, not, to, not just their interests? And, and that is um, still not yet happening, but it's clear we need to get to that goal. Otherwise, they will uh, continue to be criticized uh, by users, by media, uh, and by books. Doesn't that suggest, um, that, uh, Kai-Fu, that the issue around regulation, public debate, which I know your book challenges head-on and says there is a need for this, is really necessary. Uh, the length of time we have been speaking about this and the possible rocket boosters that AI could put um, under the business models of the big tech companies who have, as you say, the access to these huge data sets, allowing them to carry on uh, monetizing or, or building successful businesses. I, I didn't mean to infer that they're evil for doing this. They're businesses. That, that's, as you say, is, 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 is um, a corporate goal and a perfectly reasonable one. But I, I suppose the critics would say that that regulation is often discussed but is so difficult to make happen, whether it's governments, nation to nation, global regulation. The tech companies keep saying, well, please send us new rules. We'll abide by the new rules. But so slow, the engagement on regulation. How could AI help us regulate <laughs> these processes? <laughs> because, frankly, getting human beings to agree, whether they're in the US or China or in the UK or in South Korea or Australia or Sudan, AI must be able to help here, surely. Give us a solution. I don't think it's so simple. Uh, it, it is clear to me that breaking these companies up isn't the right solution. Uh, neither is take all the data away from them because then we'll also be, will be gone all the conveniences that we have through these apps. So uh, efforts to push them closer to interest alignment should be the solution. So one punitive way to do that is to uh, publicly uh, publicize how well they do with fake news or some other metric and, and measure them on a monthly basis. If they don't perform well, maybe there's a fine. If they do particularly poorly on some others, some aspect, maybe there's an AI audit. And um, if they do well, then maybe they qualify for some kind of corporate ESG uh, investment threshold and people will buy their stock. So just make, make their reputation more linked by quantitative metrics on how they are doing. That might be one possible path. Um, a, uh, another path would be make very clear what things are not, not acceptable because if we're going to do audits, we need to decide if it's uh, fairness we're after or uh, addiction or showing fake news. We have to decide what is the metric. And, and I think uh, 
their usual answer is, well, we can't possibly catch every fake news because there's a lot of areas of gray. But uh, I think we have to figure out how to have regulations that have degrees of gray. That is, your fake news score must be 80% or better, whatever that means. And then we're going to call it right sometimes, call it wrong sometimes. But if you're doing a great job overall, we might make a few mistakes, but you'll still score 95 and we set the bar at 80. Uh, This is the way AI works. AI is never certain whether the picture is a dog or a cat. It's just got some likelihood. So why not apply some kind of a score and say, you just got to score better than that? Yes, I know. Not every question is scored perfectly, but... Uh, most of them are scored pretty well, and if you do a good job, we know you can get over 80. So set some pretty tough rules and be comfortable that your your point-by-point um, uh, point correction won't be absolutely perfect. And my favorite one is to come up with a whole new ecosystem where every app builds stuff that are consistent with our interests. That's not at all impossible. Think about our interests. What do we really want for ourselves? We don't want to be addicted to three hours of YouTube videos. We don't want to be shown things that uh, make us angry. Uh, What we want are things like uh, become smarter, have more knowledge, become more liked and respected, and become happier. These are all goals. So can we somehow measure apps in the way that they give us these truly valuable, indisputable, universal goals? Um, not measured in one day, like how many clicks, but measured maybe in a month, maybe in a year. Uh, the closest approximation commercially I can think of is Netflix, uh, because it's not adver- it's not supported by advertising. It's not trying to trick more eyeballs per day. It's trying to create high quality content um, and and based on our rating and based on our willingness to watch twenty episodes in one season. So as a result, most people would agree content on Netflix is, is professional and it's uh, suitable for different people. Uh, and it's not, it doesn't, as, at least um, doesn't come anywhere close to advertising-based businesses in showing us biased, addictive, short-term addictive content. So I think it points the way there are such services that people will pay money for that make themselves um, have fun or grow or uh, become happy uh, over time. So uh, promoting these business models with whatever policies or uh, investment models that are possible would probably be a good way to permanently uh, get out of the current situation. That's really interesting. Is that a global... Uh, how do you set that type of process so that globally all the players can be clear on what that set of rules or guidance, I think that's a wonderful way of putting it, uh, actually works? Who, who, who sort of, I suppose the question is sometimes if you think about the, as we would say in the UK, the person on what we call the Clapham Omnibus, which is kind of just the person going to, going to work on the bus might just say, who's in charge of that bit of it, of making sure <laughs> that we're all a bit more like Netflix than we are like some of the uh, rather more criticized um, platforms. Yeah. Yeah. um, I think people who uh, invest like us, I can do a better job in investing things that I know are for longer term good. Uh, Governments can give incentives to investors and entrepreneurs who will um, do things, uh, invest invest in things in that direction. Uh, 
entrepreneur should be informed about: Do you want to be regarded like a uh, a company helping people, or do you want to kind of be always mentioned by media as a public enemy? And I think people will gravitate in the right direction.、Uh, there's not a one person responsible. It's there's a, a bits of it that all of us、uh, can do. And and I think once once、um, there is momentum, then there will be a large shift. It's like the first advertising-funded website, whatever it was, Yahoo or Netscape or whatever,、uh, brought in the avalanche of the rest of the、uh, business. So every for for a long period of time, every internet company, when they're raising money and asks, "What is your business model?" the default answer is through advertising.、Uh, only recently, I think we. Are creating momentum against it. We're hearing more companies doing subscription, whether it's enterprise software or cloud solutions uh, or uh, Netflix-like products. So I think a shift is kind of happening、uh, for business reasons. But I think we can maybe add a little more、uh, fuel to that、uh, move away from advertising、uh, towards subscription-funded. Then that will naturally create a better ecosystem. It, it could also be. Actually, become part of sort of ESG, your sort of environment social governance model. Maybe should be referring to these types of issues and should be part of your of your of your way of operating as a corporate.、Uh, right, right.、Uh, ESG probably shouldn't penalize companies for being advertising funded,、nope. <laughs> but it could pen. It, <laughs> you could penalize companies for having too much fake news or too much、uh, unfairness or too many or too many consumer complaints or something like that. We're getting some questions in, which are brilliant. I'm going to come to them in a few minutes. But this is a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much,、uh, Kai Fu,、uh, about your book AI 2041. I don't want to appear negative because there's much, much、uh, positive in your book around、um, healthcare, for example, around education, around personalization of education. But I do want to ask you about the. What might be described as the fairness and bias issue around big data—that it doesn't become clear until you get to the outputs—that because of the way data is collected, and frankly, because of who leads on the coding, but also who leads on、um, the use of digital platforms, particularly where lots of data will come from, can lead to biases in the outputs. Issues around gender. Issues around race. How do we build systems that are able, before you get to the output moment where there's a problem, and it over recognizes and over indexes people for biased reasons?、Uh, there are a lot of simple,、um, obvious errors that can be fixed. For example, a large American company <clears throat> trained their HR AI system. Um, a lot more men than women, then their their resume filtering、uh, ended up giving a bias for men naturally. So that kind of problem can be addressed by better training for all the AI engineers that they bear responsibility to have balanced data,、uh, especially re- regarding gender, race, and some of the key issues that people care deeply about. And furthermore, there can be tools that will raise a big、uh, red flag and says, "Hey, you just compiled an AI program that got all this ninety、uh, percent men, ten percent women. We don't recommend launching it.、Uh, launch it at, at your um, uh, your uh, 
responsibility. So those are things that can be done at a uh, reasonably simple level of balance. But um, a lot of the more complex issues, the first story in AI 2041 is actually one of my favorite, even though it's a fairly simple example of a powerful insurance company that owns a lot of apps, social e-commerce and everything. It ends up getting in the way of the love life of a girl uh, and trying to prevent her from dating a, a, a man due to racial reasons, even though uh, all traces of the race have been erased from the system because AI is so smart, it can infer that based on uh, not just you declaring what your, what's your race, or in this case, caste, part of the caste system. It can figure out based on your name, where you live, how, how much money you appear to have, and, and your zip code, and so on. Uh, so, so the power of AI is very strong, that even if you go out of your way to balance your data, to, to remove elements that you think may cause a gender or racial bias, AI may still figure it out. So I think that requires a lot more studies. And I think it's at, at this point, I would say that we should re-examine how biased humans are. I think if we can do what I mentioned earlier, very good AI engineering, education, try to balance our data, be conscientious of the problem, have good tools, I would argue that uh, the AI at that point in time is going to be uh, dramatically fairer than most people because people can't remove their bias. And AI actually can remove most of it by balancing data. Uh, most people have are biased and don't even know it or don't admit it. Uh, you know, as an example, uh, in Israel, they did a study that judges, a set of judges, gave much tougher sentences before lunch than after lunch, just because they were hungry. So, so that level of bias and irrationality and being overrun by our, our um, um, emotions is something that's, um, I think, quite terrible with humans. And I, I do think if we do the things I mentioned, we will already reach a good state that should be better than uh, uh, the great majority of the people. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. 
Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It's interesting that you talk about humans and bias. What about the concerns that have been raised that the great powers within AI, if you imagine them in the hands of bad actors, whether they be terrorist organisations, or even more particularly, actually, governments, states, facial recognition, you write about that the inference can be made by AI techniques about someone's sexual orientation, for example, possibly their religious background. How can the public really trust that in the hands of bad actors and governments and states, this material will not simply be misused? Well, if there are people with uh, malintention who want to do harm to society, uh, that is the biggest danger behind this and every other technology, right? Those bad actors could have used um, electricity uh, or the internet to do very bad things, and those would have to be basically uh, 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 laws to protect people and enforcement that is um, sets an example and creates um, deterrence, enough punishment to deter people from doing that. There's nothing else we can do. Uh, in fact, in the AI 2041, uh, probably the, the, the most negative story was one called quantum genocide. And that is a, uh, a, a terrorist who's like uh, Una Bomber in the US, and he just wants to kill all the elites. And he, in fact, uh, trains a, um, a large number of drones, which are very, very small. By 2041, they can be very tiny, very tiny drones that just have a little bit of dynamite in each one and that has facial recognition, GPS tagging and, and, and tracking of people. And when you fly these 10,000 drones out, they will identify and uh, shoot and to kill in point blank range. And that power of building autonomous weapons that can kill massive number of people uh, in a particular type, in this case the elites or gender or race, uh, to do it in a massive way and without leaving traces or leaving yourself immediately vulnerable like a, you know, if you were to tie a bomb and go bomb a, uh, a school or a church or something, you would be killing a lot of people doing terrible things, but you would kill yourself too. When you have that autonomous weapon, uh, you could potentially get away with murder without uh, adding any more risk. So I do think in this kind of area is where there needs to be international collab- cooperation, uh, whether it's by treaties or ban, uh, to really uh, ensure that these um, non-state uh, actors or terrorist groups uh, aren't able to get away with this, whether it's through uh, the sales of equipment or the occupation of airspace uh, or some other mechanism or very severe punishment. If this doesn't get started soon, we're going to see a lot more uh, targeted assassinations that are enabled by these $1,000 drones that can be more accurate and uh, doesn't create uh, vulnerability or risk for the, for the bad guys. Before I go to questions, let's finish on uh, an up note. Your, your, the ending to the book is really fascinating that you do leave us with this, this really, I don't want to say utopian because that's not, that's not the right use of the word, but you, around the issues of happiness and what you call plenitude, which is 
the economics of scarcity could be solved by AI. Could you just talk us through this very optimistic ending to the book and why you have left, why you leave the reader with that notion that although, as you say, of course, bad actors, terrorist groups, states, governments, whoever they may be, can do bad things, why you feel that happiness and plenitude is actually is likely to be the outcome of well-used AI. Right. Uh, actually, I think the last three stories were alternate endings to the human race. Right. Yeah. So there's there's <laughs> yeah. there, there's kind of kind of one negative one and two positive yeah. ones. So that roughly represents my belief in the odds. So um, the last chapter is based on some facts and some speculation. The facts are that in 20 years we should be able to use AI, automation, robots to do uh, most of the routine work that we do today, thereby dramatically reducing the cost of labor in the production of goods. At the same time, the cost of materials will come down through advances in synthetic biology, life sciences, and also the cost of energy will come way down by the use of distributed um, battery, more advanced than lithium storage, using solar as the primary and wind as the secondary. Maybe there's hydrogen and other things. There are just so many things being worked on towards the goal of um, a carbon neutral that I feel it's um, not at all outlandish to predict 90% reduction in the cost of energy in 20 years. So if you think about the production of anything, uh, labor's reduced maybe 80-90%, materials some percent, 50%, let's say, and then energy by 90%, we are really reaching uh, a level of uh, low cost and uh, uh, a plummeting of the prices of many, most goods that we have today. So if we were building a new earth from the beginning with that's zero-based, we surely can use this new materials, new energy, and new uh, robots to create enough uh, ve- uh, uh, vegetation and farms and food and housing because all of that can be manufactured uh, for all the people with enough surplus. Uh, so I think that, I believe that is factual. Uh, whether we will get there, I think is incredibly difficult because you're to, to, uh, companies will find ways to trick us to pay more money and uh, people want to accumulate wealth, wealth inequality, countries aren't equal. So I actually don't think we can get there. But um, the, 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 so I think the last chapter is meant for us to think if in 20 or maybe 30 years, we could get to a state when we can feed everyone, bring everyone out of poverty, let everyone on, on earth living a uh, life of comfort. Yet, we're not likely to do that. Where are we screwing up? In our economic system, in our permitting human greed and selfishness and vanity to get ahead of doing something that should be fairly basic to provide uh, sustenance and respectable living for all. What are we doing wrong as a human race? And that's really meant to to be the question asked. It's uh, framed in a little bit more positive light, but um, uh, I'm not optimistic we can solve it in 20. I hope we can solve it in 40 or 60 uh, years. Kai Fu, thank you so much. It's a, it is a fantastic ending to the book and very, very much food for thought. Let's go to some of the questions that you've sent in. Thank you so much, all the audience, for joining us on this lunchtime and, and evening chat in, in Beijing, lunchtime in London, and joining us from around the world. 
So, Kaifu, let's let's try and rattle through these um, as much as we can for for our audience. Um, first question, uh, and you touch on this in the book uh, with some detail. What do you think about uh, of the rise of cryptocurrencies and AI use in the financial system? Is this an area where you see big change? Uh, I believe blockchain is a fundamentally valuable uh, technology. It can do a lot of things. In the book, I describe several uses. One of which is to guarantee authenticity of all the video, audio um, images captured by all the devices, thereby allowing us to authenticate the courtroom evidence and data, <clears throat> and also um, uh, get rid of problem from deep fakes. So that's kind of one use of authentication. Uh, another example is that the cryptocurrency, uh, one of the key things in ensuring that our cryptocurrency is stored safely in a distributed manner is that we have a strong encryption security system. But uh, we should be aware that with quantum computers, some bad person can attack a certain percentage of the Bitcoin wallets and take the money away. And, and, and yet, at the same time, it is quantum computing that will reinvent the future of the ultimately safe encryption system. So those were the key technology points that I point out. Uh, with respect to today's cryptocurrency, uh, I'm afraid I still see uh, a bit of uh, hype and uh, participants whose intentions are not completely pure, and it's still quite a bit speculative. Uh, I'm quite disappointed that there's not enough people who are really working on hard technology-based solutions to solving the POW problem, that is, using up so much energy uh, to protect the Bitcoins and other cryptocurrencies uh, and, and not solving uh, the energy problem, which is uh, environmentally problematic and, and also arguably not generating a lot of um, value for the society. I think if we solve that one, then many uses of blockchain and cryptocurrency uh, will become possible. I hope more computer scientists will try to figure out a better solution than the current uh, POW solution to prove authenticity. I think uh, it is, should be possible to get a sizable increase, uh, but I just don't see enough uh, serious efforts on this, and that's a little disappointing to me. Another question. Do you think initiatives like the EU's GDPR are good protection for consumers, or does it just make European companies less competitive? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, I think it does a lot. It of makes th them less competitive. Yes, but it, all, it does many things. First, I think it's very good in that it raised the whole world's awareness that people care about personal information and privacy, and something needs to be done about it. And I think it set a gold standard that the world is actually emulating now. So I think that's good. Um, but I don't think it's all that effective, uh, you know, because when I go to all these websites, Windows pop up and I just click yes, 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 yes. So it, it's kind of transferred responsibilities to me uh, without me not knowing, with me not knowing what I signed up for. So it hasn't really achieved that purpose. I think it sort of pushed the websites and the apps to say, I better be careful, otherwise a big fine is coming. That part is good. In the way it's implemented, I'm not sure it's all that uh, protecting because individual users uh, either don't have the patience, time, or technology background to judge uh, what 
part of the data to send to what websites. So maybe an AI will be needed one day to, to judge for me because I, I don't think if I can't do that, I think a lot of other people also can't, can't do it. And I think if you, uh, the other thing is that uh, I think generally speaking, not GDPR per se, but generally speaking, the EU approach has the following downside. Um, I guess UK follows this, so I should say EU and the UK approach has the following downside. Um, I think it asks too much to have a human in the loop because human in the loop causes AI to be ineffective. The whole point of AI is not to have a human in the loop and, and that's, that becomes a problem. And also I think having, um, uh, I think the, the wish that let's all, I think the idea that we own our data is absolutely correct, but let's, the actual action or hope that all the internets and apps, internet companies will take all the data, ship it back to us and won't store it anymore. That's something that just won't and can't happen. I think it's just too optimistic to hope for that. And if that, even if that were to be possible, the AI will no longer be that effective. So I don't think that's a good idea. And I, th I think the regulators also have a strong belief that um, it is a mechanism. GDPR and other regulations are, are, a are a set of mechanisms intended to slow down AI. And I think that I, I can see why you feel that way. But if you feel that way and implement it uh, and enforce it, uh, you will be behind countries that um, don't have policies that are designed to slow down AI. In fact, US and China are trying to accelerate AI. Um, and, and that would hold back EU on the, uh, realizing the commercial potential for the uh, AI companies and, and industries. And Kai-Fu, given what you've just said, it would appear sensible under, for you that the UK withdrew from GDPR now that it is outside <coughs> the European Union and went to more what might be described as the American route. I actually think the American, uh, I mean, I've, I've, the, um, I would think the American policies are, ought to be culturally acceptable to the UK. I haven't studied the details of the differences, but I know Europe, EU is, is tougher, US is lighter, and, and I, I don't know enough difference between the culture UK and US. But I would say uh, for if you want to study to help accelerate your businesses uh, without going all the way to abandoning this direction, then it's reasonable to consult the American uh, regulations to see if they're a better fit. Climate change, one of the biggest issues, of course, or the biggest issue facing uh, the planet. Uh, question about that. Uh, do you have insight on how AI will impact climate change? Does it have the answers? And you have a, a question mark and two exclamation marks. So I'm not sure that the, uh, the audience member thinks it will, but it's an interesting and exciting question. Yes, I think AI can make uh, significant contributions and uh, anything with data uh, is something AI can digest and uh, propose solutions. Uh, today, we probably don't in understand the cause and effect of all the climate change and I think AI can help us figure out what are the problem areas and, and, and with people symbiotically find uh, solutions. Uh, I, I think that is an effort that, that should be done. AI can also be used on a more specific level. Uh, we invested in a company that builds an AI-based simulator 
for new materials used for batteries, and then it simulates the battery, and uh, and so so it can improve uh, the energy storage by in, em, uh, using AI to emulate it in software and accelerates the discovery process. It's it's uh, I, I think you know climate change is like a human body, if you will, or human body is a microcosm of climate change. We're, if we can use AI to, to diagnose human illnesses and improve them and to invent drugs for human, it would seem uh, the climate change is just a more complex version of that that, uh, that people should definitely work on. Uh, but I don't think it's a short-term proposition. You know, healthcare AI will probably take another five years to take off Climate change will also take some time, and we don't have any more time to waste. So I hope more countries and, and more companies will, uh, will, will look at ways in which AI can be, can be integrated. You touched on healthcare, interestingly, and there's a lot of material in your book about healthcare. But of course, we've gone through, or are still going through, um, the, the COVID emergency, the disaster for many millions of people around the world. And um, Sarah asks, uh, we are still in a pandemic can AI help us with developing faster vaccines for new variants on COVID-19 or other diseases that may emerge in the future? AI-based uh, drug discovery is absolutely one of the most exciting and near-term possibilities. Uh, AlphaFold is a huge um, step forward in um, being able to fold proteins. Uh, we have invested in a company called Insilico Medicine that has extended that by looking for uh, targets within pathogens and then finding small molecules that will fit into the target, effectively finding the drug that's once the protein has been fold folded. So combining these discoveries together, we can significantly accelerate drug um, uh, discovery. And you still need a human to watch the process and select from the candidates. So we've demonstrated um, with, within silico medicine that uh, it can uh, actually get two, uh, two drugs in a clinical trial at this stage. Uh, and we're already in human trials. So it's, it's a, a proven technology. So I think this will have the effect of reducing the cost of discovering a drug by as much as a factor of 10. And when that happens, more rare diseases will be treatable. The speed of discovery can be as much as one-third uh, the total length, not counting the clinical trials. So we'll have faster, lower-cost drug, drugs deal, uh, treating uh, potentially rare diseases. So all of that will be great for humanity. Uh, the one part of the question that I'm not sure is whether it would apply equally to vaccines. Uh, I haven't studied that. I haven't seen any work to demonstrate it. Uh, there are AI tools that will help drug discovery, but not to the extent that I talked about. Uh, my speculation is there's probably not enough time for AI to make a big contribution to vaccines in the next year or two, which may be the most critical time for vaccines. So probably not this time around, but, um, but certainly uh, when and if there's another pandemic, I would think... Um, AI-based drug discovery, all to carry over to vaccines. Two minutes to go in this wonderful session that we've had with you, Kaifu. Could I ask you just for very quick answers to the two questions that are left from our audiences? So firstly, what effect on unemployment will AI have? And specifically, do you believe in universal basic income or, some, or another initiative 
to soften the blow of displacement. Uh, yes, I, I think AI, be given so good at optimizing quantitative routine tasks, will displace a lot of jobs. Uh, probably 40 to 50 percent of the existing jobs are routine in nature and poised for uh, and vulnerable to AI displacement over the next 15 or so years. So next 15 years will be a tough time. We are watching in the companies we invest in that AI is now doing customer service, now it's doing telemarketing, it's doing some types of assembly line, it's doing forklifts. So we're watching this um, really unfold before our eyes. So it is really happening. I do believe AI will also create many new jobs. And uh, for example, data labeling and um, uh, AI programmers and robotic, uh, robot repair and so on. And, and also many jobs that we can't anticipate today. So over a long period of time, let's say 30, call it 30 years, I think AI will create more jobs than it uh, displaces. But in the 15 year time frame, more displacement than creation. That would be my prediction. Uh, in my book, I talk a lot in a lot more detail about, about how this comes about and what are things we could do. Uh, I believe universal basic income is an approach that can be helpful. It addresses the um, uh, wealth inequality side. It taxes the rich to give the poor a, um, a buffer, and I think that's useful. But uh, keep remind, remember, though, it's not just about not having enough money. It's about how to redirect some of that money to retrain and gain the skills that will not make someone who's lost a job once to lose another job. So it's about um, having spending it on retraining, uh, investing in oneself, and giving the guidance on what, what to learn, what to retrain. So that is arguably even more important than the universal basic income. And also, lastly, the universal basic income should not become a crutch, uh, something that people can say, okay, I no longer have to work. It, it, there needs to be some motivation uh, for people to have the drive to move forward again. So maybe better to cover uh, health, shelter, living expenses, and, and things like that, rather than just give people money. Because we have seen that historically, when people are in destitute positions and given a lot of money, they may just spend it on alcohol and drugs and not really use it for self-enrichment, which they uh, badly need. Final question, and thanks for your patience, uh, Kai-Fu, and thanks audience for hanging on just past the hour mark. But which companies do you think are best positioned to take advantage of AI? And that's a question from Diana. <clears throat> companies most advantaged uh, to do that? Yeah, well, what, whichever company has the most data, and I would qualify that by saying structured data that has accurate labels that connects to a business metric. Because if you possess that, then you can create a closed loop in which your data will improve your business metrics. And then to become more specific, the companies that have already benefited are the internet companies the Amazon, Google, Facebook, Tencent, Alibaba, ByteDance, and so on. Uh, the next set of companies will be companies that are traditional, but have data nevertheless. Uh, the most prominent of which will be financial companies, banks, insurance companies, investment companies. Um, 
and then I think there will be also opportunities for disruptors. Some industries are poised for disruption, and <clears throat> as AIs can, AI learns to see and read and understand, and machine translate and uh, uh, transportation. I think all of these are poised for potential disruptions. Uh, but in the in the in the near term, whoever has the data has the biggest advantage. In the long term, you can take advantage of AI by either being a disruptor, using it to create, to do something that nobody can do uh, and change an entire industry, or an industry early adopter that embraces AI combined with your traditional industry to be a step ahead of competition. So it's a huge opportunity, kind of like whoever embraced the internet back uh, 20 years ago, got a huge, huge uh, leg up on the competition. Just finally talking about employment, in 2041, Will an AI human robot be able to do this interview better than me? No, <laughs> I think I have to say no. <laughs> but actually, <laughs> uh, just, uh, just to be polite, no, seriously, uh, no, I don't think so. I, I do think they can do a reasonable job. I think they can do a reasonable job. I, just by training it on all the interviews, uh, they should be able to do a decent job. But I think some, some parts would be hard, you know, humor, um, and, and subtlety will be difficult, but just um, asking questions and uh, doing follow-ups, those are things that uh, AI will, will be able to do. Uh, but probably the part that's hardest to emulate is that um, as, as a good interviewer, you have your fan base and you have people who want a human in, in the process and they want to know your background, they want to get to know you. So even if an AI approximates your capabilities, uh, I'm sure... Uh, Intelligence Square will still much prefer uh, to have you. <laughs> Kai-Fu, thank you very much. Very good line from my CV. Kai-Fu says I should have a job in 20 years still. Thank you for that. Kai-Fu, what a wonderful book. What a wonderful hour we have spent with you. Thank you so much.